today, you can turn to Amos chapter 1. Amos is this smaller book um, in the Old Testament. If you're not sure where it's at, uh, we're going to be reading together on the screen, but you can also look in the table of contents in your Bible or get there on your device, and we're going to begin reading in Amos 1, um, verse 1. Um, I have a lot I want to communicate today, so I'm going to stay a little bit closer to my notes than I normally do so we can move through this and so that it will make sense to you. Um, Let me give you just a little bit of background about this prophet, Amos, in the Old Testament. Um, We actually know very little about him as a man, as a prophet. Um, There's a little bit of information at the very beginning of this book. We know where he was from. We know that he was involved in uh, shepherding, you know, somehow, but we know very little about his background. Um, he is from the kingdom of Judah, but he preaches in the kingdom of Israel. So just a little bit of a refresher, or maybe you're learning this for the first time. By this point in Israel's history, uh, there has been a civil war, and the northern kingdom has split from the southern kingdom. And so now Israel, the tribes of Israel, which had been one kingdom for, for a while, are now these two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which is referred to as Israel by this point, and the southern kingdom, which is referred to as Judah by this point. And there is, this happened because of a civil war, there's animosity between um, these two parts of the kingdom, even though they share the same history um, with God calling them out from Egypt and giving them his law. They have that same history, but right now there's these political divisions between them. So Amos is from the southern kingdom, Judah, but he's called to preach and to prophesy in the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, And let me just give you a little bit of context so you know what's happening in Israel by this point. Um, If you were to visit Israel at this point in their history, um, you would see that they are actually at the height of their political power, military power, um, religious fervor. Um, By all accounts, it looks like the nation is doing really, really well. Um, There's lots of worship happening. Um, The borders of the nation have been expanded. There's been significant military victories that have allowed Israel to rest in relative peace, um, but also to have more land of their own than they've ever had before. Um, And this is important to remember as we get into this passage, that Amos is prophesying to a people, the northern kingdom of Israel, who really believe that God is on their side. They believe it with their whole heart. God is for them. And why wouldn't they think this? The evidence is everywhere. They're winning in battle. The economy is strong. They have more land than they've ever had before. They're worshiping God. Um, By all accounts, they are convinced that God is on their side. Um, that God is blessing them, that the proof is in the prosperity that they are experiencing. And it's important to remember because you'll see why it was hard for them to digest then what Amos was saying to them. Um, Because Amos comes with this very different message. It's very hard for them to see validity in what he's saying. But just so you understand some of what was happening in the kingdom of Israel, I think we have a slide here um, that we'll put up, the kingdom of Israel in the time of Amos the prophet. There were three kind of social forces that were forming the kingdom at this time. The one was colonization. I mentioned that Israel's armies had been successful in battle, and as a result, they had seized more land, but that land, when it was seized, was given to the nobility of the kingdom. It was given to the king himself, 
and it was given to his officials. And so this resulted in kind of an elite group of people, a small group of people who owned a lot of land in the kingdom. Um, colonization had caused this. Another thing that had happened in the economy was specialization. Um, what this means is if a noble was given land by the king, so Israel's army you know, had a conquest that got some more land, and then this land was given to an official, well, let's say the official wanted to grow grapes or wanted to grow olives. It let them plant and, and own these huge farms that were now you know, producing all of this wine or all of this oil. And up until this point, Israel really had been populated by small family farms, um, by people who made just enough off of their land to support themselves and their family. Well, this is just like economics 101, right? They, they were now competing against these huge farms that were able to do what? Sell their goods for less, right? So these small family farms weren't able to compete against these giant farms that had come into existence because land had been given, you know, to this small class of people. And so this meant that these small family farms often were not able to pay their bills or take care of their families, and so they had to borrow. So who did they have to borrow money from? They had to borrow from that same group of people, right, who had the resources. So they would borrow from these people and get resources from them, and often they would default on their debts. They weren't able to pay their debts back. And so what would that mean? It means they would lose their land. They would lose the family farm. They weren't able to stay on it, and this resulted in the third thing, urbanization. We know even from archaeology in this season of Israel's history that there was a mass migration to cities, to urban centers, and for the first time in Israel's history, there was a big population of people who did not own any land of themselves. They were trying to get by and support their families and trying to work um, in the city. You know, it's interesting, before this period of Israel's history, the archaeological record actually shows that in most towns, um, the size of houses, they've actually been able to discover this, that the size of houses in most towns prior to all of this um, was basically the same. Um, most people in Israel kind of lived in the same kind of economic class. They had the same amount of resources. Their houses were pretty much the same. By the time we get to this period in Israel's history, we see a very different picture um, there are very large houses, and there are very small houses, and this has never happened before in Israel's history. This is a new dynamic that is now part of the nation. Um, and so this is the context that Amos shows up to speak into and to say some things. Now, you can hear where this is going. Amos is one of the prophets who has a lot to say about justice and injustice, about oppression um, about the mistreatment of people, not just interpersonally, me and you, but on a large scale, how large groups of people can mistreat other groups of people and not even know it, as we're going to see. Um, I think it's important for us sometimes to look at these passages in the Old Testament for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, I don't have to tell you, there's whole sections of the church and whole groups of Christians who don't even know that this stuff is in their Bibles, for real. Um, they don't even know that this stuff that we're going to talk about today is so close to the heart of God, they're unaware. But on the other hand, we also live in a day in which there are competing notions of justice out there that are being debated in our culture today. What is just and what is unjust? Um, what is right and what is wrong? And not all theories of justice, when you hear that word thrown around, 
our biblical theories of justice. Um, one of our values here at the church is that we believe in biblical justice, meaning that justice is God's idea, that if we're going to talk about justice, it has to conform to his will and to his moral law. Um, and so this takes us to our Bibles to search the scriptures to discover what God calls justice, what God calls just and unjust. I think we need to know what our Bibles say about this, number one, so that as we engage the culture, as we try to get involved in justice ourselves, um, which we are very committed to as a church and as a network, that we understand what is right and what is wrong as we talk about things like justice. But I also think that even in groups of people who have different theories of justice than we do, who talk about justice but it's not rooted in the scriptures and it doesn't conform to God's will and moral law, we are called to reach those people as well. And so I think it's super important that we don't just write people off, but we find ways to engage in relationship and engage in conversation. I don't have to tell you that there are huge parts of our culture today that long for justice for the oppressed. And even if we hear something in those voices that isn't right, that doesn't conform to the scriptures, I think our responsibility is not just to write those voices off, um, but to enter into relationship, to find places that we can listen and understand and bring to the table what God has deposited into our hearts by his spirit and by the scriptures. So that's why I want us to look at this today. So we're going to read from Amos chapter 1. That's some background. Um, it's a long passage, and, and for this Sunday and next Sunday, I'm going to uh, preach from the same passage for the next two Sundays and pull different things out of it. Um, I can tell you there's a lot of geographic names in this passage. There's a lot of names of kings. And today, I'm not going to pull apart all of those names. Instead, I want you to see some of the big themes that are in this passage, okay? So um, I will read, and you can follow along on the screen if you would like. You can just follow along in your head and in your heart because of all the names we won't try to read it together, <laughs> okay? That would be challenging. All right, Amos chapter one. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. So Israel's king at this point is a guy named Jeroboam, all right? He said, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem the pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. Now, let's just pause here. Let me tell you what's happening. Amos is about to prophesy to Israel's neighbors first. Um, he's going to start with some of the kingdoms that are like Israel's arch enemies. People who don't worship the same God that they do. People who are pagans. And he's going to start by prophesying some things against them. We're going to say this about, more about this next week. But trust me, as Israel's hearing this, they would have been like, go get them, Amos. These are our enemies. You know what I mean? Say a word against them. Prophesy against them. These are the people we have fought in battle. These are the people we've had to defend our borders from. These are the people who are doing terrible things, worshiping false gods, right? Um, so 
Amos starts by prophesying towards them. When he says this thing, there's kind of this formula for three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. Scholars think different things about this, but I think the best way to understand that is not that Amos is literally listing three sins and then four sins. Um, It's an expression that means fullness. It means that the sin of this empire, of this neighboring empire, has reached its fullness, and now God is going to execute judgment against it. So verse 3, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent, because she threshed Gilead with sledges, having iron teeth. I will send fire on the house of Haziel that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza. So this is the capital city of the Philistines. If you know anything about the Old Testament, the Philistines were like arch enemies, right, of Israel. So here again is another kingdom that's an arch enemy. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. I will send fire on the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron till the last of the Philistines are dead, says the sovereign Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Tyre, this is the capital city of the Phoenician Empire. Here again, arch enemies. For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not relent because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. I will send fire on the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Edom, now here there's a shift. The next few empires are blood relatives of Israel, and Edom is the first. And so these are people who, if you looked back into their lineage, you would find that somehow, distantly, they were related to the people of Israel. But if you think that makes Israel feel closer to these people, you would be wrong. They actually have even more animosity towards these people, racial animosity, political animosity. And so here again, they're like, Amos, prophesy to Edom. These are people we do not like. Prophesy to them. For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not relent because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. I will send fire on Teman that will consume the fortresses of Basra. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Ammon, here again, blood relatives, even for four, I will not relent because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah that will consume her fortresses amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violent winds on a stormy day. Her king will go into exile, he and his officials together, says the Lord. Feeling cheery yet as we read this together? (laughs) Okay, chapter two. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Moab. Here again, these are cousins of the Israelites. Even for four, I will not relent because he burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king. I will send fire on Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kiriath. Moab will go down in great tumult amid war cries and the blast of the trumpet. I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Judah. Ah, now Israel's getting very excited, right? Because this is the southern kingdom that they had a civil war with. And it's like, I just imagine them hearing this and being like, thank you, Amos, we knew it, 
We knew it all along. Um, it's finally someone saying something, right, about the southern kingdom. Prophesy in Yahweh's name against our cousins to the south, our brothers to the south. Prophesy to them because they got it wrong, right? And so there would have, and remember, Israel's doing good at this point. It's like they're looking at Judah down their nose, you know. They, they're looking at Judah and they think, you know, Judah has issues. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Judah, even for four I will not relent. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees. Because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says for three sins of Israel. Wait a second. Wait a second. It's not what they would have expected to hear. As a matter of fact, the rest of the book of Amos, those were all just paragraphs for each of those empires. The rest of the book of Amos is directed at Israel. This would have totally taken Israel by surprise to start hearing this. Let's read what he says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. It's the furthest that we're going to read in the next couple of weeks. You might want to go ahead and read the rest of Amos' prophecy against Israel, but I wanted you to see how he set this up. This had to be shocking to Israel to receive a message like this. It, things look prosperous. Things look good. And they certainly are better than all of the surrounding kingdoms. We'll say more about that next week. But Amos begins to lay out the charges against Israel, God's people. These are people who worship the one true living God. He begins to lay out the charges against God's people. Um, and he has a lot of things to say, but we're just going to look at the few things that he says in these few verses from Amos 2.6 to 2.8. First of all, they sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Um, some scholars have wondered if this verse um, has something to do with bribery in the courts. Amos definitely has something to say about that, and he's going to say it later. So do the other prophets. But probably the clue in this passage is um, selling the needy. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Amos is probably condemning the unjust and cruel enslavement of people over small debts. That's what the phrase pair of sandals mean. It's like it, this has become the case as people are losing their family farms that they take a debt, um, they take a loan out that's not worth more than even a pair of shoes. They're just trying to feed their family. And when they can't pay it back, then the people show no mercy, right? The people who have the money show no mercy and end up bringing into enslavement the people who can't pay back these debts. It's like in Israel, it has become possible to buy people just for a pair of sandals. And I want to point something out here that probably nothing illegal was happening in this system in Israel. Probably not at all. As a matter of fact, in the Psalms and elsewhere in the Old Testament, um, those with resources are encouraged to give loans to the poor. It says in Psalm 112 verse 5, good will come to those who are generous and lend freely. 
God commanded the giving of loans to the poor. And so probably nothing illegal was happening, technically, on paper. Um, But what was happening was these loans were being given with no mercy in their hearts. And so they were using a legal system to enslave people. They were using, think of this, God's law to actually disregard the humanity in other people. And you see this in Jesus' teaching by the time he gets to the New Testament. This is kind of what he's always coming after the Pharisees and the religious leaders for, that they're following the letter of the law on things. They are technically doing everything they're supposed to do, but without mercy or justice in their hearts, without love in their hearts. And when that happens, um, people actually get hurt. People actually get abused. People actually get misused. For me, this is a reminder that in Israel, in this period of time and all throughout history, the many of the things that we look back on and call unjust were things that were legal in their time. Um, They were things that were sanctioned. Um, They were things that the people who are participating in it wouldn't have thought even that they were doing anything wrong, right? We're not breaking any laws here. We're, We're doing things right We're supposed to give loans to the poor. And if they don't pay, then we're supposed to do X, Y, and Z. We're just working within the law. But God is like, it's deeper than that. It's not just about following the rules and the law. The question is, is this person loved on the other side of this transaction? Is this person loved on the other side of this interaction? And Israel was terribly missing the law. They were using the courts, legal means, to enslave more and more of the poor. And this is what Amos speaks out again. Look at the next part, Amos 2.7. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Here, Amos is talking about a heart attitude that has happened in Israel, taken root in Israel. Um, The particular method isn't mentioned in this verse, um, but the heart attitude is that the people of Israel have become hardened towards the needs of people, hardened towards the poor. They're doing this without any compassion and not reflecting God's compassion. Um, I think about how this is still so often the case today. Friends, we were at district conference for the Western PA District of the Christian Missionary Alliance last week, and I heard a guy speak who's done ministry in public housing projects in New York City for most of his ministry. And in tears, I was weeping during a sermon because as in tears, he's just telling us, I hear too much hateful and hardened speech towards certain groups of people that we perceive to be our enemies, our political enemies, or that we don't like for whatever reason, or who are poor and oppressed coming from the church coming from the church, um, talking about people who are trampled on, um, people who are lost, people who don't know any better. And, and it is like, it's not only this, but it's like social media has made this a hundred times worse. Um, it's like we don't mind attacking whole groups of people and to even feel righteous doing it, but hardened our, group, our hearts to a whole group of people um, with whatever label, political label, or they're living in that part of town. But it's not just social media. I'm not going to tell the whole story, but um, a couple of years ago, a friend wanted to introduce me to a friend, actually an elder in his church. And uh, I was late to this meeting um, because at the time I was on the school board, and, uh, and I sat, I, I, I texted, I, the meeting just went over an executive session, and I texted and said, I'm going to be a few minutes late. I show up. And I sit down, and my friend is eager to introduce me to his friend. And the first thing 
uh, my friend says, well, I, I said, hey, I'm late because I was at the school board meeting. And, and he says, oh, what school board? I'm just sharing from my experience. I live in Aliquippa. I'm just sharing my experience. Um, I said, well, I was on, on the Aliquippa school board. And the first thing out of his mouth, this is an elder in his church, a white church. He says, you must be the only white person on that board, huh? It's the first thing he said. I don't know what he meant by that. Um, but, like, number one, that's not true. Um, but now, this is, like, how we're meeting. It's an awkward beginning to dinner. You know what I mean? I'm like, I'm like, uh, actually, no. And he was like, oh, listen, I know all about Aliquippa. He hasn't asked me any questions about myself. So he's like, I know all about Aliquippa. He said, you know what one of the worst neighborhoods is? Is Plan 12 in Aliquippa. Well, that's my neighbor. That's where I live. And so, so he's like, that's one, of the, that's one of the worst neighbors. He said, I won't even drive through there. You know, he's like, you know, saying this stuff. And anyway, I won't share the whole story. It was uncomfortable. Um, he's an elder in his church. I'm sorry, he knows better. He knows better. He does. He has sat under the teaching of God's word. We have ways of talking about whole groups of people, a whole neighborhood, my neighborhood. Like, people are less than human. Like, they, like the only thing we should do is avoid them. Um, like, like, we would never enter into the place where they live or where their homes are or whatever. Um, and I wish, I really wish that I could tell you that it's been totally uncommon for me to have to navigate those conversations. Um, but unfortunately, it hasn't been. Um, not here at the Gospel Tab, thank God. You all are amazing. Not perfect, but you're amazing. No, <laughs> I'm not perfect either, so it's cool. Um, but, but it has been hard for me to navigate those, those conversations over the years. I relayed, not long after that happened, I relayed that conversation to Levi and Jade, and we just had a good belly laugh together at the absurdity you know what I mean, of writing off a whole place of the city um, because of fear, hardening our hearts and justifying it somehow. It's scary. It's dangerous. Justifying the hardness of our hearts to a whole group of people. Look at the second part of Amos 2.7. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. Um, obviously, this is a reference to sexual immorality um, it was illegal in the law for father and son to have sex with the same woman. Um, but there's something deeper going on here in context. This isn't just about sexual immorality. There's probably a particular setting in mind when Amos is saying this. He's talking about slavery. So he's talking about female slaves in the household that have been brought into the household um, of the wealthy in Israel because of this kind of exploitation, and now they are being sexually used in this place. This isn't just sexual immorality. This is about the economic exploitation of sex to oppress people. And I don't have to tell you that if you want to talk about a justice issue that is alive and well on the earth today, it is this. We live in a day and age in which there are more slaves than ever in human history, and most of them are involved in the sexual in, in these massive schemes of sexual exploitation, particularly of women and children. And Amos is saying, you are experiencing pleasure off of the exploitation of others. This is one of the ways that injustice gets entrenched in a society. Friends, I have to tell you, this is well documented today, um, that much of what is viewed as pornography in society today um, is directly tied to the trafficking of people. Um, I was in uh, Belle Glade, Florida 
uh, ones, a community that we have a connection with. And in Belgrade, Florida, there's lots of undocumented immigrants. And, and by the way, do, do you see? It there feels like there's legal justification to take advantage of people because we're not breaking the law. You know what I mean? Like, we're not breaking any laws here. There's nothing... But this group of people who harvest a lot of our food, by the way, especially during the winter months in Florida, um, is just so vulnerable. Um, and one time we were staying at the church where we were staying at, and a woman who cleaned the church, a grandmother, came in, showed us a picture of her granddaughter, the 16 years old, beautiful, gorgeous girl. And uh, she had gone missing because kidnappers come into Belglade all the time and take teenagers and kids from that community, um, and nobody cares. Um, nobody cares, because these are undocumented workers. Um, it's so easy to harden our hearts, you know? All, you can hear people saying, well, they shouldn't be here anyway. It's so easy to harden our hearts, to make justifications for why we shouldn't be involved, or why we should. She comes to us crying, no legal recourse. Her granddaughter is missing, and much of this is tied to pornography, and Friends, I just want to tell you, because I say this to people, and I, I think they don't realize what's happening. Uh, this is really, like, direct. But even sites like Pornhub or whatever, places where people are uploading videos, and it looks like it's just someone having fun in their bedroom or whatever, you need to know that a lot of that is tied to human trafficking. Um, it is part of the facade that's put over all of it. Um, it's not just someone having fun behind their phone. Many times it's a slave trapped behind a phone. Um, it's injustice tied to pleasure. Amos 2.8. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. This talk about a garment, they lay down beside every altar on garment taken in pledge, actually refers to a law of God in the book of Deuteronomy, and here's what the law says, that if someone took a poor person's garment as collateral for the loan, and that's the only garment that person had, the law of God said that you had to give them back that garment before nightfall. Um, you weren't allowed to take as collateral things that cause suffering in the lives of other people. And this is Amos's charge here, is you're lending money in ways that's causing suffering. You're taking as collateral people's farms. You're taking as collateral the last that people have. They can't put food on the table anymore. And then he says, in the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. Here again, he's saying, you are actually experiencing pleasure, fine wine, based off of the exploitation of other people. The economic hardships of other people is what's letting you to experience this economic blessing. So what Amos is doing is he's unveiling the prosperity, the true nature of the prosperity in Israel. Israel's been saying that this prosperity is coming from Yahweh. Israel is saying this prosperity comes from God. It must be. They're experiencing it. And Amos is like, no, 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 no. This didn't come from God. This came from you using people. This came from you taking advantage of people. Oh, but we didn't break any laws. Doesn't matter. <laughs> um, you're ignoring the suffering of people. Um, there's now inequities in Israel that God never imagined for his own nation. 
God never wanted this kind of inequity in his own nation. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament law is filled with provisions to correct this kind of inequity. One of the biggest is the year of Jubilee, which we mentioned a couple Sundays ago, um, where all of the land that was taken in these situations was supposed to be returned back to its original owner. The purpose of that is it's radical. It's a radical law. Nothing's ever been seen like it in all of human history. And the goal was so that there weren't generations of people accumulating more and more and more wealth for generations and generations and poor people losing and losing and losing wealth for generations and generations. Of course, this just gets worse. Um, the, the goal was so that this stuff would correct eventually. Do you know that the people of Israel and the kingdom of Judah never celebrated Jubilee? They never could bring themselves to do it. Um, there was just too much money to be made. They could never bring themselves to do it. And it was legal. Do you understand? I just keep emphasizing. It felt right. <laughs> it felt like this was God's blessing. Why do we have to follow Jubilee? We're already blessed. It's just how it felt. Now, let me just make some points from all of this that we've looked at in Amos. First of all, God is concerned not only with individual sin, but with social systemic sin as well. I think I have this on a slide. God is concerned not only with individual sin, but with social systemic sin as well. There's a lot that I could say about what justice and injustice is. But for now, let me give this definition. Systemic sin is called injustice. And systemic righteousness is called justice. Um, God is very concerned about the sin and the righteousness of the individual in scriptures, of you and me as individuals, but he's also concerned about the systems the way we relate to each other, um, the places where we relate to each other, the institutions that are built in a society, and God cares about both of these things. I am so glad to be part of a network flowing out of the gospel tab that is robustly concerned about both of these things. Um, listen, we care about the individual salvation of people passionately. I have been preaching on that for the last few weeks. But if we're serious about the kingdom of God coming, your will being done, God, on earth as it is in heaven, then we are also concerned about that kingdom manifesting in groups of people as well, manifesting in the places where people have power or where they're lacking power. We want to see God's kingdom manifest there as well. And I do not think these things need to be pitted against each other. I think we can care for the person, share the gospel with them, feed them a meal, uh, help them get enrolled in after school program. And I think we can also ask the questions, why do we have to keep feeding people meals? Why do we have to keep supplementing education? Why do some neighborhoods for generations continue to suffer? It's okay for us to ask those questions and to say, God, what is it that you want to do? What does it look like for your kingdom to show up in this place as well? Secondly, if you aren't the victim of some form of systemic sin, it is hard to see it. I mean, you definitely see this in this passage. Amos, arguably, is one of the most challenging books, hardest books in all of the Old Testament. Why does Amos come at them like this? Why does he come at them with this strong language? Well, the answer is they cannot see it. And the reason they cannot see it is because they have not been affected by it. Oh, the people who lost their farms, yeah, they see it. <laughs> you know what I mean? They've experienced it. They might not understand the full picture, but they're experiencing the pain of it, Right? But the people who have benefited from the military conquests, the people who have used the courts legally to make more money, um, they just don't see it because it's not hurting them. And this is still the case today. One of the reasons you may not be able to see 
the kind of systemic injustice that other groups of people experience who are different than you is because it hasn't affected you. And I think this is why we need to be in relationship with people who are different and just humbly say, hey, I don't understand, but tell me your story. Um, I don't see it, but tell me what you see. Help me understand the pain that you and your people have felt, right? Um, just hearing that helps. Next, systemic sin is the fault of many people. So the solution is only found when many people repent. It's the fault of many people. So the solution is only found when many people repent. Um, it's not just individual sin. It's the sin of a whole group of people. So, for instance, any one of those landowners um, in Israel, they could have repented individually and said, you know what, I got this land, maybe legally, but in a way that's hurting other people, i got to fix this. I'm going to give it back. I'm going to return it, right, to the people. I'm not going to be so harsh in the way I lend money. And that would be a win in that person's heart. And that would be wonderful. But Amos here is prophesying not just to individuals, but to a nation. And he's saying it's not just the individuals who have to repent, but it's the whole thing that has to repent. That's going to require the repentance of whole groups of people. That is some of what we at the Gospel Tab call revival, by the way is when whole groups of people enter into repentance together, right? And this is why revival is absolutely connected to justice. Revival is not just about the salvation of souls, even though we are utterly committed to that. I'm not diminishing it at all. But in every age of human history, including where there's been revival, including the first and second great awakenings here in the United States, it was accompanied by this desire to fix systems in our society that were oppressing people that were hurting people, because whole groups of people were repenting, right? It wasn't just individuals changing something in their heart. Whole groups of people were repenting as the Spirit of God was working with them. Next, God's compassion is aroused when the weak are mistreated. Um, it's so interesting. It's so hard for us sometimes to enter into God's compassion for another group of people, especially a group of people who we perceive to be our enemies or you know, different than us or whatever. It's so hard for us to enter into God's compassion for them. But listen, the good news is every time you see God's compassion for someone or a group of people and you think, wow, God loves them like that, them like that, like God really loves them, the second thought in your heart should be, oh, how much he must love me then. Like, we, we there's a sense in which we really grow in seeing the, depths of the love and compassion of God when God extends his love in the places where we least expect it, you know? But then that should turn to be like, oh, that's how much God loves me too. Um, that's good news for me too, that God is a God of justice, that God is a defender of the poor, that God is a defender of the oppressed is good news for all of us because God is revealing his compassion to us in these places. And listen, God loves everyone equally. I've said this before. God loves everyone equally, but there are, um, there are places and people where his compassion is aroused or drawn to them in a stronger way. The illustration I always give is I have three kids. You don't ask me who's my favorite. I love all three, right? Equally. You know what that's like as a parent. I love all three. But if one of my kids were sick and in the hospital at least for that season, they would get more of my time, more of my emotion, more of my, well, this is how God relates to the poor. 
Um, it's not that he loves them more. It's that he's compassionate and he's drawn to the places where people are hurting. He's drawn, and listen, because God is like this, honestly, you can tell a lot, a lot about how much a person has really encountered grace in their life by the way that they are or are not able to extend grace to the poor. Um, I'm not being judgmental when I say that. I'm just saying that the more we encounter grace, the more we have room in our lives for people who are hurting and oppressed. The more we want to give our resources. The more we want to be part of the solution. Because God saved us because I was poor in spirit, if nothing else. So of course I can have compassion. As a matter of fact, this is the last point, because we've received grace. This means that we're a people of justice. I'm not going to say much here because I might say it, uh, we might preach on it in uh, a couple of weeks. But over and over again, and Amos even does this later in the book, the, the rationalization, the justification for why we should pe be people of justice, God says it over and over again in the Old Testament. He says, remember that you were once slaves in Egypt. It's, it's what he's always telling them. Remember, you were once slaves in Egypt. You were oppressed. People were taking advantage of you. People were exploiting you. And the scripture is so clear. God saved Israel not by anything of their account. He just picked them. God just came to Israel and picked them, this exploited, broken, bruised people, right, to be his own. So he's telling them, you got to remember that you've received my grace. You've received my favor. You... So if you really understand that, of course, even if there's a legal loophole that you can jump through to take advantage of some, of course you wouldn't do that because you were once a slave. You knew what it was like for people to do that to you. I've given you grace, so do that to other people. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up here in just a few minutes. Um, I don't like preaching sermons like this without helping you think through what to do. Because especially in the face of these like big issues, these big injustices that are all around us, it can be like, well, what am I supposed to do? Um, I just want to give you a few steps. First of all, and I ask you this just from the bottom of my heart, <laughs> believe that justice matters to God. I think this is a wonderful first step because I meet a lot of Christians who really don't. Um, a lot of it is ignorance. They just don't know the things that are in the scriptures that I just shared because unfortunately, can I tell you something about passages like Amos 1 and 2? The more um, power and influence and wealth that's in a church, this is just my experience, um, but the less passages like this get preached. And in churches that have experienced oppression, um, in churches where the people have suffered in some way in society, um, these passages get preached many times. It wasn't until college that I really realized the Bible said this stuff. You know what I mean? That God was so serious about justice. So I think the first step is just believing it, that this stuff matters to God and it's part of his kingdom coming. Next, repent of ways that you are participating in injustice. I meet a lot of Christians who, not a question mark, <laughs> I didn't mean to put a question mark on there, maybe repent. <laughs> <laughs> no, just repent. I'm just. Um, <laughs> but listen, I meet a lot of Christians who, when I bring up these issues of systemic injustice, their first response to me is, "Well, I didn't do that. I didn't participate in that." This like defensiveness comes out of them. I'm going to be honest with you. I, I don't understand that in light of grace. Listen, if God saved me, we sing it in our songs. A wretched sinner like me. 
then why is it such a big jump for me to say, yeah, I've probably participated in injustice in ways that I don't even know. I've done a lot of other things, you know? When I hear that defensiveness come out of people, I hear a lot of shame or an inexperience with grace. It's like, look, when you know God loves you, you can just admit it. Um, I've participated. This is why the cross is so wonderful, because the cross doesn't just cover the sins that I know about. It covers all the ones I don't know about, too. All the places that I've participated in justice and haven't even been aware of it, the cross is, is enough for that, too, so I can admit it. Next, do something to agitate other people to repentance. Something. Serve at a place. Speak up. Um, I don't know, talk to family and friends. Sit down with us and talk with us if you need ideas. I, I know I, to this day I still don't do enough. These issues are so much bigger than any one of us. But I think rather than being paralyzed, we can step in and do something. And I use that word agitate because I just want to say that Amos the prophet, listen, he would have been viewed as abrasive, um, not kind, unpatriotic, He's prophesying against Israel and to people who are proud of their country. Um, and it's a reminder to me that there's something in God's heart that agitates us towards repentance, that gets us stirred up. Now listen, not every voice that gets people stirred up in our culture is God or a prophet. Some of it's the enemy, right? And this is why we preached on a couple weeks ago, shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves, right? Being aware of, of, of the difference between these voices. However, I've also learned that just because someone is agitating, just because someone is making a mess of things, just because someone is stirring things up does not necessarily mean that God isn't using them. God doesn't use just peace, calm, kind. He uses people like Amos, Right? <laughs> Um, to stir things up, and sometimes God's voice is showing up in people like that. And lastly, do something, but remember that the testimony of your life speaks louder than anything else. Um, listen, part of, part of what maybe we need to do is post more on social media. I don't know. Like, maybe that's a way to educate people. I don't know. I don't, I don't really buy it, but maybe. Um, and maybe that's, like, a way that, you know, is helpful somehow. I don't know. Um, but I just want to say this, our commitment to justice in the kingdom of God has to be so much more than social media posts. It has to be so much more than memes that we share. You know what I'm saying? I think God is calling for something deeper from us, relational, something that is plodding, um, something that gets into the trenches and relationships with people. And let me tell you something about that kind of justice work. Very many people will not see it. And they will not thank you for it either. But your reward is in heaven, right? God sees and God will reward because you're joining his heart in what he's doing.